I really love sharing, I guess, our passion and why we do what we're doing. It all seems so fast and you don't think you've achieved much until you get people that come and visit and tell you how much you've actually achieved kind of thing. So, Welcome to a special series of The Producers. I'm Danny Vallant. For the producers in Launceston, we're taking a big bite of Lonnie, as it's affectionately known, and its surrounds in northern Tasmania. Present-day Launceston, population 67,000, is at the heart of the Stony Creek peoples of the Cheranotapana, Paninhur, and Letta Ramara Ranya Aboriginal clans. The rich soils have fed people here for tens of thousands of years, but in a post-colonial culinary sense, it's perhaps been best known for the vineyards of the Tamar Valley to the northwest. Things are changing though. This region has a burgeoning reputation as a food hub, built on the work of more than 150 food producers, more than 200 cafes and restaurants in Launceston and the region, and the work of a community committed to celebrating produce and gathering around it. Paddock to plate, market to market, meal by meal. These connections and commitment are at the heart of Launceston's designation as a UNESCO City of Gastronomy. This rare honour was bestowed in 2021. There are just 36 cities of gastronomy in the world and only two in Australia. Bendigo in Victoria is the other one. This is a region of green pastures, clean air and water, fertile soils and a temperate climate. Food is grown here all year round and much of it, especially from the smaller producers, stays very local. In this series, we'll speak to half a dozen producers, most small, some a bit larger, many new and some more established. We'll also hear from Massimo Mele, a Tasmanian chef and restaurateur who champions local farmers and is passionate about showcasing the very best of the region. The Producers in Launceston is a Deep in the Weeds production and comes to you thanks to Agricultured, a festival that celebrates the produce and people of the region. I'm Danny Vallant and I'm thrilled to be your guide as we get our boots dirty in Tasmania. For our first episode, we head to a pig farm half an hour outside of Launceston. Kim and Daniel Croker live and work on idyllic Forkett Farm in northern Tasmania. Their beautiful, black, rare-breed Berkshire porkers forage, socialise and wallow their way around a small, pretty farm half an hour from Launceston. I've eaten this pork at Grain of the Silos restaurant in Lonnie. It was so incredibly tasty and so beautifully rich and satisfying with a golden crisp crackling. Let's find out the story behind this paragon of porketta. I'm Kim, uh, owner at Forkett Farm. We're at Labrina, just outside Launceston. And I'm Daniel from Forkett Farm. So in 2017, we basically said Forkett to our old lives and we quit our job, sold our house and bought a farm in Tassie. And we decided on pigs. And so now we run 12 Berkshire pigs free range and we also do all the production on farm as well. Yeah, we're on 44 hectares um, in the Tamar, East Tamar Valley, um, right in the middle of the Pipersbrook wine region. So from the farmhouse, you have a beautiful um, view over the valley. wasn't so nice in what January when the bushfire was coming down the valley towards us. So, um, But yeah, beautiful view over the farm. 
uh, there's a winery literally next door to us. Um, it's yeah, you look out over a couple of steep hills down Piper's Brook meanders through the property as well, um, and look out over the pigs that are sitting pig areas on about 20 acres. Um, we have the rest is just divided up into paddocks to graze cattle and sheep into. Um, yeah, that's what else. Yeah, got the natural brook, which is na- um, just about to be fenced off as a wildlife corridor as well um, and revegetated. So to keep the stock out of that. So once again, all about managing land as well responsibly. A surprising number of primary producers in northern Tasmania are new to farming. Daniel and Kim said fork it to completely different careers before they moved from Brisbane to the island state and got on the pork trail. So I used to be a research academic at UQ um, doing drug discovery research and development. So um, always said I'd never be a research academic and then ended up being one. So got sick of teaching students and got to the level where I was senior enough that I never actually did any lab research anymore. So it was all writing grants and doing all that kind of stuff and not actually doing lab work anymore, which drove me insane. So it was the bit I loved, not the actual paperwork and everything else. So. I was in education, so I started as a high school teacher and then did a lot of work for RSPCA and local governments. And, yeah, we just said if, if we ever won the lotto, we'd buy a farm and hide away. And then one day we said, no, let's just do it. Why wait? <laughs> Tasmania appealed for the climate and environment, both for people and for pigs. Choosing pigs was partly a commercial decision, but also personal. When you want great pork and it's not available, why not grow it yourself? Uh, Tassie was for the climate. We were getting sick of the climate in Brisbane, just hot and humid all the time and not really very many seasons. So, um, And it was only getting worse. So we came down to Tassie for the environment. It's a better environment to raise pigs in as well. So that's why we chose it. And then I have some relatives in Launceston, so this is partly, you know, there's some family contact when you're establishing yourself in a new area. So uh, that was the main thing. Why pigs? A little bit of a niche market, I guess. Um, Everyone has cattle and sheep. Not many people have pigs. So we thought that was a a way to sort of differentiate ourselves. And we couldn't find decent free-range pork and especially free-range charcuterie like that was made in Australia that we liked and could eat. So thought we'd give it a burl at trying to make it ourselves. Kim and Daniel threw themselves into their farm and quickly reached capacity. But continuing to get bigger isn't really part of the plan. Um, yeah, for the first three months my parents come to help us set up fencing and the first pigs arrived so we landed in late March and the first pigs arrived in June and then I think our first market was June the following year so it's been pretty whirlwind and to now where we we literally sell everything we make and could sell more but we don't really want to be any bigger we enjoy still being hands-on with everything we do so Um, I do mostly the farm side and Daniel does most of the production. Pig farming, butchery and charcuterie was all a bit of a mystery when Kim and Daniel started the farm. How did they school up? Uh, A lot of reading, (laughs) a lot of watching documentaries and other things like that and a lot of people help as well. The small community is really good. You can talk to a lot of people and they'll give you free advice, so which is really great. And so we try to pay that forward now. So anyone that's looking to start up or has any questions, they can give us a call and we'll share 
our information freely because it was shared freely with us. So, yeah, it's it's learned by doing. It's the same with the butchery side of things. Obviously, I'm a scientist. I'm not a butcher, but now I've learned how to butcher and make charcuterie. So I've had a lot of people that have helped us along the way, and we've just gone from there. No one expects farming to be easy, but what were some of the trickiest times as Fork at Farm got going? Uh, the truck got bogged trying to deliver the sows, so that was always good. <laughs> so we were the last delivery on the truck with our little 10 new gilts that were arriving and we've got quite a steep driveway. It was this time of year, so it was wet as well. So big semi trying to get up, got bogged at the top of that thing and we didn't have a tractor to pull him out or anything. So it was a, a quick contact of about finding a neighbour that had a big enough tractor to come and pull the pigs out. But then, yeah, getting them off was good and it was learning how to do fencing and all these kind of crazy things that we hadn't done before. So we'd done a lot of that. Although it's the first day when we tried to take them to their area, I ended up flat on my back in the mud. So that was that was the, the first time and not the last. Yeah. <laughs> Animal welfare is at the heart of Kim and Daniel's approach. But what's life really like for their free-range pigs? Uh, so they live a really wonderful life. So every morning they hear the breakfast van coming and they come running and they get a grain-based diet as well as a lot of waste stream feed. So they get a lot of milk, some apples and sometimes nuts and berries, whatever we can get our hands on. And the rest of the time they're free to roam around the paddock and graze on the grass or dig in the dirt, wallow in the mud and they have little houses they can choose to go in whenever they like. And, yeah, they get rotated around, so they get new paddocks regularly. And, yeah, they're very happy. (laughs) We just try to be really non-interventionist with how we farm. So let the pigs be pigs most of the time. Um, It's all natural mating on the farm. So the girls go in with the boys every six weeks, um, come out. We have paddocks where the girls go to farrow. And then, yeah, just we leave them with them. We don't intervene at all. So we don't dock teeth or castrate or clip tails or anything like that because we don't need to. The pigs have got plenty of space to and plenty of things to entertain themselves. The, the most intervention we have is we vaccinate our breeding stock um, before they give birth just to help protect the piglets from any, you know, major pig diseases and for the life that they're on the farm. Yeah, that, they're great fun. So for a while I had to go back to off-farm work and if I had a bad day, I'd stop at the pigs and sit with them for half an hour and just watch them because they're a bit like dogs. They're very curious. They're into everything. They're always playing. Yeah, they're just a joyful animal, really. They can be obstinate, though, when they want to be, <laughs> so, which can be a problem when you're trying to move them. So, um, But other than that, yeah, that's why we, we train them with the fruit and the apples and to give them treats to try and get them to go where we want to. But, yeah. They're fun. They've all got their individual personalities and all that. It's really entertaining. They're great. So we know Forkett is a boutique operation, but you start to realise just how micro it is when comparing it to some we of Tasmania's hurt, mainstream so piggeries. within our breeding Abattoir. stock. Um, the, 12 the pig's final day is a crucial part of the process. And Kim and Daniel well, we have, have been lucky to land on a local a abattoir sale, that does a great job. Probably turning off about 120 pigs a year. So when you compare that to most piggeries, like the biggest in Tassie does about 300 pigs a week and we're doing 120 a year, so... Yeah, we're about six a fortnight. We're doing six to eight a fortnight, depending on the time of year. 
um, coming into Christmas is always busier for Christmas hams and all those kind of things. The the bane of the pork farmer, really. Everything's a huge, huge, huge demand. Uh, we're lucky ours is pretty balanced over the year. But, yeah, so we have about usually on average about eight uh, piglets to weaning. Uh, so, yeah, it's anywhere from that 120 to 150 pigs a year we're producing. So really micro, micro scale on the scale of pig farmers, but we're sort of very boutique as well with what we produce. So, The pig's final day is a crucial part of the process and Kim and Daniel have been lucky to land on a local abattoir that does a great job. It was to begin with. We used to have to drive them all the way over to Devonport, so about a two-hour drive. I know on the mainland that doesn't sound like much in Tasmania, it's more so. Um, but it was a trip there and then back and then there and back the next day to pick up the carcasses. Um, because we were so small, we couldn't get them. There's only one carcass transporter in the state, so they wouldn't transport to our farm because it's too out of the way. So we had to buy a refrigerated van and go do the run as well. Um, we're lucky that was bought by JBS and then JBS closed it down and all those kind of things. Um, we were lucky that in the pipeline... The biggest pork, or probably one of the biggest free-range ones in the state, Scottsdale Pork, was building another independent abattoir to sort of obviously reduce the risk for their own business. So that has actually been built about half an hour from our property now. So it's ideal. It's state-of-the-art. They're really good to work with. They work really well with the small producers and everything. So um, we were a little bit iffy before we had that relationship, before we started that relationship, just not, not showing how, knowing how it was going to work, but it's actually worked out really good for us. So, And it's much better for the pigs as well now. So half an hour, turn off, straight in, and most of the time they're straight into the um, into the slaughterhouse as well. So, And it's state-of-the-art, so it's much better from the animal welfare side of things as well. And much better for a travel thing. So we've saved about 12 hours every cycle of travelling time now because we can go back the next morning and just pick them up. Growing pigs is great. Sorting out the abattoir side of things is essential. Butchery is important. But getting fork at pork into restaurants and homes has been both tricky and satisfying. The first restaurant we went to was the Agrarian Kitchen. So Brodney's restaurant, so that's pretty good um, validation of what you're doing. And they were their regular customer when they don't sell so much pork to Rodney because he has more of his own now. And we got so busy, we didn't have any spare, unfortunately. But transitioning back, but to sell that first product was pretty special. So, yeah. Uh, it was a hard slog to begin yeah. with, though. Like, it, you, especially when you're, you're selling that not lean meat that people are used to seeing. So, and at a higher price point. So, but now, yeah people will buy whatever we tell them to buy pretty much which is really nice because they trust us but yeah one of the good things is we've started getting people out to the farm to enjoy our products and showcase the nose to tail dining that you can experience with pigs so that's really good been good for us as well because we get a chance to sit and well not sit but look at what we've achieved so otherwise we miss that sometimes Meat producers often get stuck in red tape when it comes to processing, value adding and direct selling their own products. Daniel and Kim explain how they've navigated these paths. We originally wanted to start out with that plan to to do our own butchery and make the charcuterie and then we got a little bit scared off by the legislation and... Hurdles when we talked to government, yes. (laughs) Um, And then when we talked to a few people in the mainland, they said definitely do it and, yeah, we haven't really looked back, so... Yeah, so we were processing with a butcher in town for about a year, um, which worked all right, but, you know, we didn't have control of the products, it's not their main priority, those kind of things, and we thought... 
we actually went to a deep winter festival. I don't know if you've heard of those. And then up talking to another pig farmers, Tammy and Stuart from Jonai and things like that. And they were very, well, Tammy's very much gung-ho about doing that kind of thing. So we went ahead and I actually went and spent a couple of weeks with them on their farm and in their boning room and stuff to learn that side of things and how they run their business. And we started out with a CSA program as well, but I think it, Tasmanians don't haven't quite got the full concept of a CSA down here yet. And we did build it up at one stage. We we're probably 30, 30 odd members, um, but it wasn't kind of the continuous enough income to use enough of our pork and grow it much further. And people still wanted to go, well, well I want this cut or that cut and that product rather than, you know, this is meant to be just filling what the butcher or the producer has spare. Um, and it took us a little while to get into the major farmer markets down here as well um, to sell the product direct. Um, so once we got into those, we sort of, we maintained what we had with the CSA, but then it's sort of, sort of naturally like fallen back to it's only probably eight or 10 people left that, that are legacy members that we still support with that. Um, but yeah, we sell both the fresh pork, the cured meat, sausages, and then we've um, rebalancing to do a bit more wholesale now as well to local restaurants. So both the wholesale charcuterie to restaurants and wineries, as well as some of the fresh pork too. So one of the wonderful things why we chose pigs as well is that you can use the whole animal. Nothing goes to waste. So, um, yeah, we just um, go for a very natural old school process. We don't use any nitrates or nitrites in anything we produce. It's all just cured in Australian sea salt and just hung for time and just let it hang and do its thing. So we just keep all the cured meats very natural as much as we, as we can. Um, even things like sausages and chorizos, we don't fill them with rice flour or breadcrumbs or we don't use any preservatives or chemical preservatives, I should say, in what we produce. So we just let, we believe the flavour of our pork is so good, there's no reason to put those things in there. And it just let the natural flavour shine. So, and I guess my experimentation now is playing with sausage recipes and those kind of things. So we don't use any packet mixes or anything like that. It's all fresh spices and I do everything the difficult way, but it's also the way that tastes better. So um, we really enjoy it and really love it. But it's a whole range so of cured meats. So we cure, we do prosciutto, we do pancetta, we do lonza, capicola. Um, we make pate de tete uh, from the head. Uh, we make ranges of liver pâtés, liverwurst. We started making our own black pudding now that with our new avatar, I can actually get my own blood back, which is great. So um, we don't bring any products in that we don't trust from other local people. So... Um, we have we use some of our own beef and other things in the production side of things, um, but we bring some products in from other people that we don't have enough of. Um, but yeah, uh, the prosciutto we've just harvested one that was two years old that's been hanging for two years and it's a pretty special product. So um, just letting really good pork age like that slowly in control is just you can't beat it. Somewhere along the way, pork changed. Kim talks through the misconception that pork is a lean white meat. It's different to what most people are used to. I I did a little bit of research last night and it's been about 40 years that Australian pork and pork internationally has been promoting pork as a white meat that's lean and ours is nothing like that at all. So it has colour and it's definitely not lean. Um, And as we all know, fat is where the flavour is. And that darker meat is comes from them having exercise and and getting more hemoglobin as well as the breed. So, 
and that's why we partly chose Berkshires as well. You get really nice intramuscular fat as well, and they're a really good mixed-use species, so they're great for a fresh pork chop, but also great to cure and turn into other things. I've been to Forkett Farm for a long table lunch where we ate our way through whole pig heads, snout, ear, jowl, cheek. Even the eye got eaten, not by me. We sat in a shelter by the farmhouse, looking down to muddy pigs lolling at the bottom of the hill. It felt great to me, but are there particular reasons the pigs love it here? It has a really great climate, so not too hot, um, not too cold. We get really good rainfall. Um, as a, when you visit the farm, you'll see it, you know, this is our worst time of year to manage the land just because it's so wet and the pigs think it's fantastic. So not that they need it wet to dig up the land, um, but they love it this time of year. They can really plough in and turn over the soil and get to those bugs and roots and bulbers. Um, we've just found a really great environment for them. They, turn, they grow really well. They grow really consistently. Um, you know, most of our, because we don't castrate boys, they're going to the abattoir anywhere from 20 weeks of age and we're turning a, you know, 60 kilo carcass out at that age. Um, and that's not, that's just then stimulating and growing on a natural diet. So, yeah, well, um, Launceston's just been named as a city of gastronomy, which is pretty exciting. And we have such a diverse range of producers doing some amazing things from miso to truffles to charcuterie to cheese. Like, it's just, really amazing to see the diversity and it's great to see the area recognized just for what not for wine now the people are starting to recognize the food scene as well and see what we can produce down here and well up here in the launceston region anyway so which is great there's no meat as versatile as pork but what are the pig farmers favorite ways to eat their wares uh favorite dish um you can't beat a proper carbonara pretty much like with we make guanciale so i age the guanciale minimum 12 months um it's amazing what pork salt and a little bit of pepper can do in time so just the flavor profile the flavor bomb you get from that from really good guanciale really good parmesan bit of pecorino and some really good pasture raised eggs and fresh pasta and you can't beat it I like pretty much anything Daniel serves up to me, but um, I guess that's the thing with pork. It is so versatile, but I'm definitely, I love my Asian-inspired foods, so those light, fresh, Vietnamese-style pork chops are quite good. Farms are always a work in progress, and Kim and Daniel have big plans, on a small scale, at Fork at Farm. Yeah, so next is us rebalancing the business a bit, as in moving to doing some more on-farm events so people can come and enjoy our long table lunches. And I'm really enjoying showcasing people how to cook the bits they think are the yucky bits. So the first one we attempted, or we've been not attempted, we've been doing is a pig's head feast. So four courses all from the pig's head. So um, match with local wines and stuff and people have been loving it, which is great. So um, ideally we're trying to access some grant money to actually build a charcuterie like tasting room on the farm as the next sort of expansion for the farm and final expansion and that will be somewhere where we can do a curated tasting experience like a wine tasting so they can taste the different charcuterie from the different cuts through the whole big um, also like to have a dedicated workshop space in there i get asked all the time to, to teach people how to make sausages and do butchery demos and all those kind of things and 
So I'd like to show people how we do things. People are always amazed. I, someone before we moved down came out a farmer friend and said, "Just make sausages and sell them. That's all you need to do." And we're like, "Well, yeah, I like a good sausage, but it's just amazing. People love sausages in Australia, and you know, I not cheap for my sausages, but we sell out every weekend. We sell seventy five kilos a weekend, like at a market of sausages. So um, it's really great. <laughs> it's good. It's amazing and people think it's hard it's really not it's just taking the time to do it properly I think is the big difference. Forkett Farm is an ongoing leap of faith it's intentional joyful and the results are tangible. Kim and Daniel share what they love about what they do. It all seems so fast and you don't think you've achieved much until you get people that come and visit and tell you how much you've actually achieved kind of thing so um, yeah no we've come a long way and now we've think we've built the business enough we always said the goal was just to have both of us on farm full-time and that's where we're at now um so not many farmers can say that you know the farm business is supporting them as their full-time lifestyle and we never set up to dominate the world it was a bit scary because kim quit an off-farm job in march 2020 so just before covid hit so um but we wouldn't have survived without it we only only have got busier from there so I really love sharing, I guess, our passion and why we do what we're doing. Um, it's not all about making money and getting bigger and fame and fortune. It's about educating others and providing a really healthy food for people to enjoy. I love doing it to see, yeah, just sharing what we produce as well. Like I spent 20 years in science and never got anything anywhere, like in drug development. So... Um, this now I can see I can raise an animal the right way make a lovely product and then feed it to someone and see their enjoyment so just that satisfaction of seeing the achievement as well and seeing people enjoy the product. Forkett Farm hasn't been there long but it's made a big impression on its northern Tasmanian community. It's trained or retrained people in what pork is really supposed to taste like. It's an example of small-scale commercial farming that has ethics and animal welfare front and centre. And it's lifestyle. Not an easy one, certainly a busy one, but definitely a satisfying one for Daniel and Kim Croker. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.